everyone doing? Truth be told, tonight's going to be a little different than normal. Uh, and I don't know how it's going to go, but I sure am going to see uh, if it goes well or if it doesn't go well. But what's new about that, right? So one of the things that they got me thinking about where we're going, and we'll get to the book of Jonah here in just a few moments, is that as we've been going through our study of Hebrews, as Bill just read for us in those very first four verses there of the entire book, he talks about how God spoke to his people. And how he previously spoke through the prophets, but now in these last days he's spoken through his son. And we've spent a lot of time talking about that. And in our Wednesday night class a few weeks ago, we were looking at chapter 10, and just something really jumped out at me about how God speaks to people. And there was a statement that he says, how much worse do you think will be deserved the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? I'm not going to dig into that verse. Well, I got to thinking about how many times does God ask, what do you think? Because the truth is, God reasons with us. And sometimes that's a scary thing, that God reasons with us. Because when someone reasons with you and they say something, they're originally entitled this lesson, If You Say So. Because if we don't like someone's reasoning... But we can't argue with their points. We say, if you say so. And that's not, what do you think? Because what do you think means, am I right or am I wrong? And the truth is, God is always getting us to think. And too often times, we don't want to think. We want it fed to us. We want it given to us. We don't want to have to sit there and work through it ourselves and figure it out. And so I got to thinking again, is this a normal thing with God? It's a very normal thing in the book of Hebrews, but it's also a very normal thing with Jesus. Remember in that last week of his life, he says to the Jews there, he says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and he said, go and work in the vineyard today. And remember what that son said? I'll go, but he didn't go, right? And to the other son, he said, go, and he didn't go, but then he changed his mind and he went. He said, which one of those did the Father's will? And the answer is, obviously, the one that did. Jesus did that, and we could see a lot of examples about that. But that's not the point tonight. The point is, I want to go back to this statement that he said, God spoke through the prophets. And I want to look at a couple questions from God that are dealt with in the Old Testament prophets. One from a prophet in which people that aren't even familiar with the Bible at least know a little bit about the story. And another one, those of us who are probably well learned and well studied, don't know anything about. Uh, So we'll have kind of a mix of both things. But what we will see in these questions from God is in one of these We're going to look at the individual. The questions that God asked an individual about how they feel or what they think. And then we're also going to see these questions that deal with a nation uh, and how a nation conducts itself and lives its way. Does that make sense? So I want you to go to the book of Jonah. 
I want you to go to the fourth chapter of Jonah. Jonah is the one in which most people, if they even don't know much about the Bible, they've probably heard of Jonah and the whale, right? Remind ourselves of that story just very briefly. The Lord tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, which was the capital city of the world power at the time, Assyria. Very important city, very important country. And he says, go to them and tell them that they need to repent because I'm going to destroy their city. And we remember Jonah didn't want to go, right? He fled to the other part of the world. He's on the ship. And while he's on the ship, the Lord sends a storm and basically ends up being, hey, I'm guilty. Throw me overboard. The people threw him overboard. And the Lord caused a great fish to swallow him up. He's in that great fish for three days, three nights, as the text tells us. In chapter 2, he prays to the Lord. And at the end of chapter 2, he is vomited out onto the shores there, apparently, of Assyria. And he goes to Nineveh in chapter 3, and he preaches, in 40 days this city is going to be destroyed. And he goes about, and it takes him three days to cover the entire city, but the, the word got from the smallest of the people all the way up to the king. And they repented. They all put on the sackcloth. They all put on the ashes. And the Lord said that he would relent and that he would not destroy these people. So that gets us to chapter 4 and verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And Jonah is all angry because God is willing to spare these people. And truth is that he's angry that God was merciful to an unmerciful people. The Assyrians were known as being ruthless. They would take captives. They would put hooks. They would destroy children as we were going to see here in just a little bit. They showed no mercy to anyone. But yet... When God tells Jonah to go, Jonah said, I didn't want to go because I didn't want you to be merciful to them. And now here I am, I'm here, I didn't really have much of a choice, but I'm willing to do it. I was willing to go, and here he is, and now they have repented. God said, I'm not going to destroy them, and Jonah is angry. And here's the question from God, verse 4. Do you do well to be angry? I wonder what went through Jonah's mind when God asked him that. The obvious answer is no. But notice his response, right? He doesn't say much this go around because he can't argue that one. But you know what happens? Jonah goes outside the city. Now I want you to notice what happens here in verse 5. Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there, and he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. I'm not sure about this, but this is kind of what I think he's doing. 
I think he's waiting to see if God actually will relent on them or not. He's still maybe a little bit hoping that God will change his mind and he'll actually still destroy the city. Because otherwise I would think he would get out of town and he would just go. I've done my job, but I think there's a little part of him that is saying, I hope God changes his mind again and he ends up destroying them. The Lord teaches Jonah a lesson. It's hot. And so he causes this gourd or this plant to spring up. And this plant springs up overnight. And it gives Jonah shade. And it gives him shelter from the heat in the day. And Jonah is like, yeah, this is good. Well, the next day the Lord appoints a worm to destroy that plant. So just as quickly as it was there, it's now gone. And so guess what Jonah again prayed? Let's begin in verse 8. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. And God asked him another question. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? So Jonah, what you mad about? You're mad about a plant? Yeah, your plant's gone, but what are you so mad about a plant? And notice his reaction. Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. I'm so mad that I wish I was dead because this plant is not here anymore. My life is a lot tougher now. And the Lord asked him a third question. Makes it in a statement here. He says, you pity the plant. For which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. What did you do for that plant, Jonah? You didn't do anything for that plant. That plant just came up on its own, of course by my doing. But you didn't do anything, and yet you're so angry about it. And then here's the question. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. End of the book. It ends with a question. When you read that, it kind of catches you off guard, because you're waiting on the next thing. But God said, hold on, Jonah. Think about those little children that are in that place. You're upset about a plant, but I'm seeing it about a little children. And not only those children, but those cattle. All of those things belong to me. Those children are mine. Those cattle are mine. And I care for them. And you don't care about them. You care about a plant. You care about yourself. And here's the truth, as I think about two applications from this. The truth is, what he had to teach Jonah, what we have to get is God's mercy is for all people. Remember, this was one of the first times that we've got a prophet going to someone who was not a Jew, to the Gentile world. And there was a part of Jonah that didn't appreciate that. And there was a part of the Jews who didn't appreciate that. You can see that in the New Testament as well with the Jew-Gentile kind of conflict being Christians. That's just the way it was. But I want you to think about it for just a second. 
about, am I ever angry about that? Do I like God's mercy? And I'm glad that God was merciful to me. But that person out there doesn't deserve it. That person out there is so bad, they're so vile, they don't deserve God's mercy. The truth is, sometimes I might utter those words. Most of the time we just do that in our thoughts and our actions. Because Paul makes a statement in 2 Timothy chapter 1, and you might want to flip there. I've tried to think of what we might consider the vilest sinner today. Like what would be the thing that would be the worst that a person could do that naturally everyone would be like, no. And the thing that keeps coming to my head is a child molester. I I can't think of anything more gross than someone abusing a child in such a way. So imagine a, a child molester hears about the gospel. And they repent. They're baptized. What am I going to do? I'm telling you, it, it could happen. And Paul found himself in a pretty vile situation. Notice down in verse 10. Now let's start in verse 9. 2 Timothy chapter 2, or 2 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, it's actually 1 Timothy chapter 1. I don't know why in the world I said 2 Timothy, besides I can't read my own slides, I guess. He said, I thank Him in verse 12. I thank Him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I receive mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ. And the saying is trustworthy and deserving, and here it is, of full acceptance. You should take this to heart, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He picked the worst guy, one of the worst guys he could find, and said, I'm going to use him. I'm going to be merciful to him to show that I can and I will be merciful to anyone who accepts me. And so this is where we get our phrase in verse 17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, God only wise, be honor and glory forever. Amen. The truth is, you and I wouldn't extend mercy to someone like that, right? But it's there for all. And you can see a lot of different things there in Romans chapter 11, specifically with the Jews and the Gentiles that I won't go to yet. And I won't go to... But his point is, mercy is for everybody. And I have to ask myself, 
Am I willing to show mercy to everyone or just the people that are kind of like me? Or just the people that I think are really worthy of it? Mercy of God is for all. Jonah needs to learn that. And then here's the other side of it. We understand that God's mercy is for all, but yet the natural inclination of man is to only care about himself. Jonah had that plant come up, and that plant felt good. And he cared more about that than he did those children, than he did those other souls in that place. He only cared about himself, and when we only care about ourselves, it clouds our thinking and our judgment. And you think of the the parable in Luke chapter 15 of the prodigal son, right? Son goes away with the father's inheritance. He wastes it on the prostitutes. He wastes it on the friends. And he comes back and he humbles himself. And the brother hears about it. And the brother is angry. He says, have I not been with you all this time? And yet you never did this for me. He lost his thinking. He was only focused about himself of, I deserve this, I deserve that. And he forgot that his brother who was lost is found. His brother who was dead is now alive. Because so self-focused. I tell you, I'm too much like Jonah. And that it's me, me, me. You wrong me, I'm going to forgive you, but I'm going to hold on to it for a little bit. That's not what he's talking about. That's not the way in which it should be. Don't be angry over that. And in Romans chapter 15, you think you're the strong one? I want you to go to that, and I want you to see that one very briefly. In this context, again, of Jews and Gentiles getting together as Christians. He says in verse 1, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. But is that the way I naturally think? Too many times I'm, I got my right I've got mine, mine, mine. And he says the Christian's disposition is it to put up with the weak. So notice down in verse 8, as he said several things here. He says in verse 8, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcision, to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness or His faithfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. God did what He did for the, Gen- for the Jews because He said He would. But notice what He says for these Gentiles. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. And He says, you've got to think about other people than yourself. So 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. In believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I don't think we want to be Jonah's and God said, Should I not pity them? 
we need to see it a little more from God's way than my own selfish way. Does that make sense? Second story, the second prophet is just a few pages over in Nahum. Now here's the cool thing about Nahum, right? We just had Jonah go to Nineveh. And if you'll notice in Nahum chapter 1 and verse 1, that this is one of those few books that's written to someone else besides Jews. This is addressed to Nineveh. And it's written some hundred years after Jonah has gone to Nineveh, so things have changed. And we don't know the exact date, but we have uh, two dates that it's in between because a city that we're going to have mentioned in chapter 3 they destroyed in 663, and then their city was destroyed in 612. And you say, I don't like history. And I say, I don't either. Uh, but here's the deal. What happens in a hundred years has major effects on the book of Nahum. Because of what happened in that hundred years, we learn that the Lord has to show himself again to the people. And in that, he shows himself to be merciful, to be gracious. But he also reveals in chapter 1 what his plan is. And his plan is, I'm going to destroy you. And he kind of mingles in a little statement to the Israelites, to his people, to say, hey, I've taken care of your enemies. I'm knocking them out. You are free. You take joy. But, Nineveh, I need you to know who I am and what I'm about to do. As he gets into chapter 2, he describes how their city is going to be destroyed. How their great city is going to fall on its face. How their men will stumble as they try to fight. And how they will be destroyed and all of their stuff will be taken away. And then in chapter 3, he finally gets to the reasons for which this destruction is going to take place. And he's going to lay some heavy things on them. But here's the thing that I want to point out about the book of Nahum. So I counted up eight questions in this little bit, uh, these three chapters here, that God asks of these people. And you can break them in. I broke them into two categories. He asks in chapter 1 and verse 6, he asks two questions back to back, which are for emphasis. It's the same way of saying, it's a different way of saying the same thing. Who can withstand the Lord's wrath? Who can stand his indignation? And the obvious answer is no one. Same thing in chapter 3 and verse 7. Who's going to be there to comfort you? Where will I find any mourners for you? The answer is, I won't find them. There aren't any who will be out there who will feel sorry for you. But then we have our thought-provoking questions, which we have in chapter 1 and verse 9, which we have in chapter 2 and verse 11, and which we have like in the book of Jonah, where the book ends in a question. The only two books of the Bible that end in questions are Jonah and Nahum, both who have to do with Nineveh. And I think that's there intentionally because we're to think about that, right? So what we're going to do, and here's where it gets different. I'm going to take the next seven to eight minutes, and we are going to read the book of Nahum. Because 
Most of us in this room do not know Nahum, myself included, very well. But what you will get out of the book of Nahum is you will understand God a little better. Because you're going to understand how God feels about certain things when a nation does it. And then when we finish, I'm going to point out three applications very quickly from these three thought-provoking things. But I'm going to sit here and I'm going to read it and I'm going to put it up here on the screen as well. And I just want you to kind of just be aware that it's going to take seven to eight minutes and just please bear with me. Follow along in your text. But just know that, hey, it's just going to take a little bit of time here to do this. So let's end the show. And let's put it up there. Got something now? All right. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries, and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they're entangled like thorns, like drunkards as they drink, they are consumed like stubble fully dry. For from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I'll break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He's utterly cut off. The scatterer has come against you. Man the ramparts. Watch the roads. Oh, and i got to make my text a little smaller there. Yeah. Oh, man. See, this is, didn't know that was going to happen. You all right? Kill him here. That didn't work. All right. I'll read it.
read it from here and I'll just do the best I can. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob, as the majesty of Israel for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers and they stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She's carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breast. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt! Halt! they cry. But none turns back. Plunder the silver! Plunder the gold! There's no end of the treasure or of all the wealth of all precious things. Desolate. Desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble, anguish in all loins, all faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you declares the Lord of hosts. And I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. And I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, Horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, the bodies without end, and they stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I'll throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I go to seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart of sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and now without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet, she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. And all your fortresses are like fig trees with the first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. 
there will the fire fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like locusts. Multiply yourself like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increase your merchants more than the stars of heaven. Yet the locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a cold day. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There's no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. And all who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? I want to begin with that third question of what, there we go, slideshow from current slide. What had happened was they were just cruel people. We saw what they did to that city there in verse 8 and verse 9, where they dashed the infants in pieces at the head of every street. And he's wanting them to think, who have you not been evil to? And the truth is, when you are evil and when you are cruel to other people, it comes back on you. They had repented for a time. They had relented, but guess what? They picked it right back up. And so within a hundred years, they are done. And you would see that said of the city of Jerusalem in the New Testament. When Jesus is rebuking the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the hypocrites in chapter 23, He says, you would say, oh, we're not like our fathers. We wouldn't have killed the prophets. He said, hold on. You already stoned and killed the prophets. And the blood shed of all these innocent people, and he mentions two names, Zechariah and Berechiah, the blood from those two people will fall on this generation. The truth is, it always comes back. There can be changes that are made. But when you come back, cruelty is rewarded. That's what you get with cruelty. God said, who did you not perform evil on? You go back to chapter 2, and you look at that question in chapter 2, in verse 11, where is the, the lioness, the lion's den, the place in which they ate and they had all this food, the lion would go out, and the idea is that Assyria, they went out and they took from all these nations, and their children had everything, their wives had everything, they had so many riches in there, and they had safety, and they had shelter in their city, but now their city is desolate. Their city is desolation. Their stuff is now taken, as it says in chapter 3, verse 1. There is no end to the value of all of their good things. Home is no longer safe. The truth is, what you thought was safe, what you built as your fortress, if you live this life, or you have this as a nation, it will come down. And isn't that, again, what Jesus says of Jerusalem? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that stones the prophets and all those things, how I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, 
but you would not. And so he says in the next following verses in chapter 4, verse 2, that's why there won't be one stone left upon another of that temple. The house is no longer saved. And the truth is, as a nation, if we are cruel, it will come back. Our capital, the things that we hold most valuable, they will no longer be saved. And then that thought-provoking question in chapter 1 and verse 9, Who has plotted against the Lord? Or what have you plotted against the Lord? And I'll tell you what, anything that you plan against the Lord is worthless. It's not going to do a lick of good. He says it was brought forth by a worthless counselor. And you think about what goes on in this country. Are people plotting against the Lord, trying to put the Lord out, trying to put the Lord down, trying to take the Lord out of schools, out of work, out of everything, you name it? And guess what? Somebody came up with that. That wasn't a natural thing to do. Someone planned it. Someone plotted it. And it proves itself to be worthless. Just like happened with, as we read this morning in Acts chapter 3, where those Jewish rulers plotted against Jesus. They got him on on trial. They got false witnesses. They were able to kill him. And they did it, as we saw in verse 17 of chapter 3, in ignorance. But guess what? They still had to answer for it. As people, we need to understand that God's mercy isn't just for me. It is for everybody And I need to get that out there and I need to share that. And then we need to understand as a nation the way in which we live our lives. We can live good and we can be a good nation for a period of time. But over time, if we live unrighteous, cruel lives as a nation and our leaders lead us in such a way, home is no longer safe. We're done. And the question is when? It's not will, it's when, because it will happen. It just may not be in our lifetimes because nation after nation after nation has crumbled because of their unrighteousness. What about being a Christian tonight? Well, on Sunday morning, I'm not going to ask questions from God. I'm going to ask questions that we need to think about as well. But I hope we learned a little something tonight from some of these questions that God asked these people. Subject, in any way, won't you come now as we stand?